The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Good morning. Good morning. Today I'm going to talk about, this is lecture 14, and I'm going to talk about protein localization. Now some of you may remember that Earlier in the semester, I was walking around with this sling. And so to help me from writing on the board, even though it is this arm, I made a PowerPoint presentation of most of the things that I would have written on the board. And for your, for your ease and comfort, this PowerPoint presentation will be posted online. So you won't have to write down everything in my slides, so just sort of sit back. And uh, I will write a few things on the board, so you can write those down. Okay, so now you've, you guys have heard about central dogma from uh, Professor Eric Lander, and you've heard about gene regulation last Friday. Uh, here's, here's something that you're familiar with, this image here, sent, depicting central dogma. DNA replicates to DNA. This is replication. Replication. DNA is translate, uh, excuse me, transcribed to RNA, transcription, and RNA is translated to protein. Central dogma. Where does this occur? Where does replication occur in a cell? Nucleus. Good. Where does transcription occur in a cell? Nucleus. I heard nucleus. That is, the, that is correct. And where does translation occur? Cytoplasm. Ah. And yet we know that these processes require proteins to do them. Okay, this, you've just described where these processes occur in a eukaryotic cell. Let's say you're a bacterium. In, a, in bacteria, where does replication, transcription, and translation occur? Where? Cytoplasm. Okay, so now we've made bacteria look very simple. But they're not that simple. And so let's take a look here. Here's a, here's an, uh, a bacterial cell. I've drawn what could be E. coli. It has an outer membrane, an inner membrane, and the space in between is the periplasm. Now here's the circular chromosome. Uh, I've transcribed some gene uh, to an RNA, and a ribosome will pop on and make a protein, which is in the cytoplasm. Yet, some proteins are localized to the inner membrane, others are localized to the periplasm, and, and some are localized to the outer membrane. Oh, dear. And others are actually exported completely outside the cell. Even more complicated is a eukaryotic protein, because not only does it have a plasma membrane where proteins are localized, it has a, a bunch of uh, organelles. There's the nucleus, and there's mitochondria, and there's endoplasmic reticulum and Golgi apparatus, and, and it, too, translates RNA by ribosomes in the cytoplasm. 
So how did these proteins get back to the nucleus or go into the mitochondria or get into the organelles? I'm not doing this. <laughs> Someone wants me to go faster. So what we're going to do in the next few slides is we're going to follow the process, because they're so similar in bacteria and eukaryotic cells, of how proteins get to the membrane and how they get outside the cell. And then I'll go back and talk about how proteins get into um, some of the organelles. So let me show you what some of the proteins are. So an example of a cytoplasmic protein in bacteria is beta-galactosidase. You've heard about it. It uh, breaks down lactose. It's in the cytoplasm. An example of a membrane protein is a lactose receptor, the LACY permease that's on the surface of the cell, brings lactose in. An example of a fully secreted protein is a toxin. For instance, Bacillus anthracis makes anthrax toxin. It's completely exported from the cell. In eukaryotic cell, there's a bunch of cytoplasmic proteins. Uh, there's all of the glycolytic uh, enzymes. And, for instance, uh, biosynthetic amino acid enzymes like histidine synthesis enzymes. Those are cytoplasmic. Uh, for, for a membrane protein, there's receptors, like the receptor for insulin, a hormone, a peptide hormone, or growth factor receptors, every receptor that's membrane-bound. And a fully secreted protein, some cells, like pancreatic cells, secrete insulin. Some cells, like some of your immune cells, secrete antibodies. Okay. So it was not clear how these, how these cytoplasmically uh, made proteins, proteins that were made in the cytoplasm, got to this location. And the person who worked on this was George Pilati. And this was in the 50s. And he uh, studied pancreatic cells because they're master secretors. And he, like, was able to perfect his microscopic technique. And you can see here, this is a, a pancreatic cell. This is endoplasmic reticulum studded with ribosomes. These are mitochondria. This is the nucleus. Here's another picture that he took. And here's the, and a rough endoplasmic reticulum studded with ribosomes. Here's Golgi apparatus. And then there's like little vesicles. So he did this experiment where he decided he would pulse, he would pulse label proteins as they were being synthesized in a pancreas, directly in a pancreas. So what he did was he injected radioactive amino acids directly into the pancreas of hamsters. I guess I could draw a little hamster here. And he directly injected radioactive isotopes. And he, what he's doing is he's lab these, these radioactive amino acids will be incorporated into proteins as they're being translated. As, and he can follow the population of freshly translated proteins through, through the cell. So he, he injects hamsters with the radioactive amino acids. And then at various time points, he adds, he also injects glutaraldehyde. So first the label, then glutaraldehyde. 
glutaraldehyde. And what this does is it fixes the cells in its tracks. Whatever the cell is doing, it just stops. And he removes the pancreas, and he looks at the cells. This is, fixes the cells. So, um, Tom? <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. Uh, can we not use this, Tom? All right. It's just doing it on its own. It has some time thing. It's, oh. All right, so, so what he found was at the early time points, now what I did, I did this, okay, he didn't see yellow. What I did was I added yellow to his original slide to show you at the earliest time point, he found the label associated with the endoplasmic reticulum. At the next time point, he found the label associated with the Golgi apparatus. And then at even later time points, he found the label in secretory vesicles. So this is my representation of what he found. So here's a cell, nucleus mitochondria. The early time points, the label was in the ER, followed by the Golgi. I didn't do that. Yeah, take it up. Followed by vesicles. It's, it's, not, it's not working. I can't. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry for that. Sorry. So... He won a Nobel Prize for this work because it is the pathway that still holds true today. Now, he won a Nobel Prize in 74, and about that time, maybe 71, another scientist named Cesar Milstein was working on um, immunology. And what he did was he fused a cancer cell with a cell that constantly secreted antibodies. So he ended up having an immortalized um, antibody-producing cell. And he was doing some research, and he, he did in vitro analysis, and he found that the antibodies that were produced in vitro were longer than the ones that were actually coming out of the cell. So he proposed that there was uh, an N-terminal end. He looked and saw that the N-terminus was different, and he proposed that um, it would possibly be cleaved upon export. Okay? And so this is, he won a Nobel Prize, not for this work, but but for his work in um, uh, immunology. And this was also correct. And so this is from his uh, lecture, Nobel lecture. It says, in vitro synthesis of immunoglobulin light chains. That's what he was doing. To our delight, we ran into the unexpected observation of the existence of a biosynthetic precursor of light chains. Further experiments led us to propose the extra N-terminal sequence was a signal for vectorial transport across the membrane during protein synthesis. This was the first evidence that indicated the signal for secretion was an N-terminal segment rapidly cleaved upon protein synthesis. Okay, so now there was a student of Pilati. He was a postdoctoral student. His name was uh, uh, Gunther Blobel. And he saw this experiment in 1971, and he thought, huh, how do we know it's not an artifact of in vitro uh, science? Well, how do you know that that the ribosome's not just hopping on earlier in the message. Maybe that's why it's a longer protein. And he didn't buy it. So he did, he wanted to further pursue this, and he did it in the, um, in, um, in the Pilati manner. So what he did was he took a test tube and he um, added message for exported protein, ribosomes, and charged tRNAs. 
And when I say charged tRNAs, I mean um, tRNAs that have amino acids attached to them. And so if you add those three things to a, um, to a test tube, you find the protein is made. So then he added microsomes. What are microsomes? Okay, we're going to pause this. Now, I told you what Pilati found out. He found out that proteins were first seen in the rough ER in the lumen. This is the lumen right here. This is where the first place that he first observed radioactivity. Now, if you take endoplasmic reticulum and you share it, it forms little tiny vesicles, little vesicles with ribosomes on the outside. And they're called microsomes for small things, microsomes. And they're essentially little rough endoplasmic reticulum vesicles. So when Blobel added to the same test tube um, that had the, the RNA, the ribosomes, the tRNA, when he added microsomes, he found that the, the protein was still in the supernatant. Didn't get, there, were, there was no protein found in the lumen of the microsomes. So he figured, okay, it needs something. Let me go extract something from the cytoplasm. And he extracted lots of fractions, and he added these cytoplasmic fractions, and he found that one fraction actually was able to cause the, the peptide to enter the microsome. And if he added this fraction late in the reaction, the protein would never get into the lumen of the microsome. But if he added the fraction late, I mean, excuse me, early, if he added the fraction early, it would get in. So let me just summarize. So message, ribosomes, tRNA, you find protein in the supernatant. Message, ribosomes, tRNAs, plus microsomes, protein in the supernatant, not in the microsomes. You find, a, you add a fraction that works sometimes, but if it's added late, the protein is in the supernate. But if you add that fir, uh, fraction early, the protein is in the lumen of the microsomes. So he interpreted this result as uh, the, that there was an amino acid sequence at the beginning of an exported protein. And that's recognized by a complex that was in the fraction. This complex is required to get the protein to the lumen of the ER. And to get to the lumen of the ER, the protein has to be just beginning to be translated. Now, since not all proteins have the same end terminus, Lobel predicted, like Milstein, whatever the sequence was, it would later be cleaved. And he won a Nobel Prize for this in uh, 1999. And it wasn't just for this, because he went on and he actually figured out the entire pathway. In the next few slides, I'm going to show you what he discerned. Um, one thing I want to just point out, though, the experiment he did was heterologous. So the extract came from wheat germ. The microsomes came from dog. <laughs> and yet it still worked. And it was, it was right, because this pathway is universal. And let me show you how universal. It's used in bacteria, and it's used in eukaryotic cells. So here's, here's, this, here's a bacterium. It's translating a message. Here's the signal starting to be translated. It's an exported protein. 
the same thing in the cytoplasm. A signal is the signal sequence is being uh, newly made. And here's a close look of the signal sequence. It's about 20 amino acids long, has a couple of positive charges at its extreme end terminus. In the middle, there's about 7 to 12 hydrophobic amino acids, variable. And this is called a signal sequence. Okay, so let's take a look at what happens. The signal, this is, okay, now we're in the cytoplasm of a eukaryotic cell. Here's a signal sequence emerging from a ribosome here. What recognizes it is SRP. That's what he named his complex for signal recognition particle. So SRP binds to the signal sequence, and if you recall, it takes it to the ER to be translated. Here's a picture of the ER, and there's a docking protein or SRP receptor. Oops. So the SRP binds to the docking protein. It brings with it the signal sequence, which is attached to the ribosome, which is attached to the message. Adjacent to the docking protein is a translocon, which is a channel composed of proteins. Um, the ribosome pops onto the translocon. The SRP floats away. And notice that the signal sequence is in the membrane. Uh, excuse me, starts to enter through the membrane. And translation uh, resumes. The signal sequence is cleaved by a signal peptidase within the ER. It cleaves off the signal, and translation continues. And if it's a fully secreted protein, it's fully internalized within the lumen of the ER. If it's a membrane, on the, and the ribosome pops up. If it's a membrane protein, the signal is cleaved again. Translation resumes, and then it gets embedded in the membrane. And so I'm going to shut this off, otherwise it's going to keep going on its own here. So if it's a membrane protein, what does it have? It has a transmembrane stretch. You've seen this maybe before in problem sets. So it's a transmembrane stretch. or transmembrane domain. It's about 20, 22 amino acids long. can be 30, maybe. So we'll say 20 to 25 amino acids of hydrophobic residues. It is a stop transfer sequence. Stop transfer for going across an ER membrane. It anchors it in the membrane. So we have a membrane. Forms an alpha helix.
if this part is the lumen of the ER, right in here, then this is the cytoplasm. Okay, so that's how membranes, proteins look of this kind. Now, I've, it's, as you can see here, it's in the, um, the membrane. It's embedded in the membrane. And I've drawn a different membrane protein over here. Says so this protein is going to work its way to the far side of the endoplasmic reticulum. Okay, as, as the fully secreted protein will also work its way. In the end, endoplasmic reticulum, sugars get put on these proteins. So when they get to the far side, they bleb off into little transport vesicles. Okay, so here's the cytoplasmic protein completely within the lumen of the vesicle. Here's the membrane protein embedded in the membrane of the vesicle. And if you remember Pilates sequence, the next stop is the Golgi. So they head over to the Golgi, they bind, they fuse, and um, what was embedded in the membrane is still embedded in the membrane, and the fully secreted protein is within the lumen of the Golgi. Here the sugars are modified. I put little bows on them. And they work their way over to the far side of the Golgi, where they bleb off again into secretory vesicles. The secretory vesicles are destined for the plasma membrane. Here we see them approach the plasma membrane. I'm not hitting any of these buttons here. <laughs> so, um, and so now the cytoplasmic protein is free. It's completely, excuse me, the, the, the fully secreted protein is free. It's completely secreted from the cell. The protein that uh, was destined for the membrane is a bona fide membrane protein now. It's embedded in the membrane. It's a receptor. So let's look back here and see what we have as an overview of what we did. So here's the fully secreted protein. Here's the membrane protein, fully secreted membrane. If you were fully secreted, you were always within a lumen, completely within a lumen. If you were a membrane protein, you're always in a membrane. Note that the cytoplasmic portion of the membrane protein is always facing the cytoplasm. And the part that's within the lumen is facing the outside. Okay. So, all of this work was done by biochemists. Uh, let me show you how geneticists approach this subject. Okay. So this takes us back to our friend E. coli. Here we see the laxy gene in the, in the chromosome, encodes an mRNA. That's translated to beta-galactosidase. Now, I told you before that beta-galactosidase was a cytoplasmic protein, and it is, but it's a tetramer. So to be fully active, beta-galactosidase has to have four of its subunits come together and form a, tetraper, a tetramer. It is now active, and this cell can utilize lactose as a carbon source, and it is LAC+. Plus. Okay. It is LAC+. Plus. What does that mean? That means if you plate these cells out, on 
a lactose plate, because lactose is the sole carbon source, it can grow. Or if you plate them out on a rich plate with X-gal, they'll turn blue. If you recall, X-gal was a substrate that uh, turns blue when it's cleaved. Okay. So now one of the methods that has been used to identify genes whose products are involved in the secretory pathway involves the use of gene fusions. Here's the LAXZ gene. Here's a gene encoding an exported protein. If you were to fuse the five prime end of this gene onto the LAXZ gene, you would have this five prime end encoding a signal sequence fused to LAXZ. And so what this would result in is a gene, this gene fusion would result in a hybrid protein where the end terminus of beta-galactosidase is fused with a signal sequence. Okay, so you take E. coli, you remove its normal laxy in the cell, and you replace it with this gene fusion. It encodes a protein, including the signal sequence in frame with beta-galactosidase. The signal sequence directs beta-galactosidase for export. It localizes to the membrane and gets stuck there. Now, it's not clear whether it's the membrane localization of this hybrid protein, or whether beta or it's the fact that beta-galactosidase can't tetramerize. For whatever reason, cells with this fusion are unable to hydrolyze lactose as a carbon source. Cells with this gene fusion are lac minus. Could be the membrane localization, could be it can't tetramerize. Doesn't matter, the lac minus. That means they can't grow on a plate as, with lactose as a carbon source, and they turn white on XG plates, not blue. Colonies are white. So as a geneticist, one can select for lac plus. Oops, this is horrible. This thing is just horrible. As a geneticist, one can select for lac plus by plating this strain that's lac minus on a lactose plate. Anything that grows has become lac plus. Or you can plate them on a plate that has X gal. Most of the colonies will be white. There'll be an occasional blue one. What would make this hybrid protein enter the cytoplasm? Where do you think you could get mutations? I'll give you a hint. 95% of the mutations, greater than 95%, map to the gene fusion. Any idea? What would cause a cytoplasmic location of the hybrid, hybrid protein? They map to the gene fusion. What does that mean? That means when you find the mutation, it's very, it's in the gene fusion somewhere.
Hybrid protein has a signal sequence. Signal sequence directs it to export. Where do you think you could have a mutation? Good. <laughs> All right. So 95, over 95% of the mutations were in the signal sequence, in the part that coded for the signal sequence. Then you have a defective signal sequence. It no longer takes the hybrid protein to the membrane. Okay, And this actually turned out to be sort of useful because the, the lab didn't want to get these. They wanted to get, um, they, were, they were going for something else, but they ended up with a slew of signal sequence mutations so they could really analyze what was important in a signal sequence. They could figure out what's really important is, is this hydrophobic stretch. You introduce a positive charge or negative charge here, bam, abolishes the ability of the signal sequence to take the hybrid protein to the membrane. You get rid of this positive charge at the end, bam, you have a defective signal sequence. So this was very useful in analyzing what's important in the signal sequence. But what they really wanted were mutations that mapped out elsewhere other than the gene fusion, mutations that would cause the hybrid protein to be internalized in the cytoplasm but not mapping here. They want them to map somewhere else in the chromosome. So these mutants that have these mutations would be candidates for having mutations in genes whose products were in the secretory pathway, like a channel protein or an SRP-like protein that recognizes the signal sequence in bacteria. Okay. Now, they got them. I'm going to tell you right now, they got them. They got... Um, they got mutations in genes that were involved in the secretory pathway, and they analyzed them. But first, just look at this. If you had a bona fide secretory pathway mutant, you would expect not only to find the hybrid protein internalized, one would also expect to find other normally exported proteins internalized, right? Like uh, membrane proteins, parapet, and that's what happened. In the cytoplasm, you found precursors of normally exported proteins. Everything was accumulating in the cytoplasm. Would you expect the cell to be happy? Not a happy camper. If you abolish the secretory pathway, it, it's not happy. But yet, the, I'm telling you, they got these mutants. How did they do it? Well, there's a way to get mutants that have mutations in essential genes. You can get mutants with mutations in DNA polymerase and RNA polymerase, genes that perform essential fun functions. And the way to do it is through obtaining conditional lethal mutants. Oops, up, 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 up. <laughs> okay, so how do you get mutations? Here we go. So conditional lethal, that means in some conditions, the colony can grow. But in other conditions, the colony can't grow or even dies. So the mutation usually results in a missense mutation, so that one amino acid is changed to another amino acid. And it might be, let's say the case for the temperature-sensitive mutation, it might be 
that at 20 degrees, okay, it can handle this missense mutation, and the protein is active. But if you replicate onto a plate at 37 degrees, it unfolds, it comes apart, and the protein is inactive. Breaks down, colony doesn't grow. So then you know it, that you have something that is required, that is essential for the cell. You can also get cold-sensitive mutations. So here, it's active. The missense mutation allows it to be active. And I've drawn this like little protein here. So here's this protein. Now watch the protein on the screen here. And I'm going to go. See, in the, the normal protein has this like function where it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, and up and down. It, you know, it has, it's a mutant protein, but it still seems to work at 37 degrees. But if you rep, replicate it to 23 degrees, it's stuck open and can't move. Can't grow, can't do its function. Cold sensitive. So that's how, that, these are conditional lethal mutations. And this is how you get uh, mutants that have mutations in essential genes. Okay, I thought you'd like to know. So let me show you the, the, the genes that were discovered in the secretory pathway of E. coli. There's a whole bunch of them. This one's sort of like the SRP, recognizes the signal sequence. Some of these form the channel. And I just want to let you know that this method involving gene fusion and the beta-galactosidase selection, this was done in successfully to identify um, secretory genes in yeast as well, only they did a fusion with histidine. They put a, signal a histidine synthesis uh, protein. So they put a signal sequence on a histidine um, biosynthesis protein, and they got it. So it's been successful in uh, several systems. Okay, so let's, let's summarize what we've talked about here. Um, this is a chart that tells you the destination of the proteins. We've got the plasma membrane and outside the cell. So what is the signal to get to the plasma membrane? What's the signal that the, the proteins have? It's called a signal sequence. We just heard about it. How does it get across? SRP binds the signal sequence. SRP then takes the whole complex over and uh, binds to the docking protein. The protein enters the channel and then co-translationally, as it's being translated, it fully enters the channel or gets embedded in the membrane if it's a membrane protein. What is the energy for this? What's the energy source? It's powered by translation. Just the, the normal energy of just translating the cell pushes it into the lumen. What if you're going to be fully exported? Exactly the same. The only difference between this is that this one has the stop transfer sequence, has a transmembrane domain that keeps it in the membrane. Okay, so now what about the mitochondria? What if you want to go inside, you're being translated in the cytoplasm, and your destination is to get into the mitochondria? Well, so you've heard that mitochondria have DNA. Uh, they do encode some proteins, but most of the proteins in the mitochondria are, in, are um, 
encoded by the chromosome. So in the cytoplasm, a mitochondrial protein starts to be synthesized, translated, and it has a signal too, only it's different than a signal sequence. It's about 20 to 30, actually I think it's 20 to 50 amino acids, and it forms a helix, and it's actually an amphipathic Helix. You've heard that word before. What that means is that on one side of the helix, it's charged, and it's mostly positive charged, and on the other side, it's hydrophobic. Okay, so this signal emerges from the ribosome and it keeps going on. So the ribosome keeps translating, keeps translating, keeps translating, and this signal is recognized by something that lets the cell know that this is a mitochondrial protein. And what happens is these proteins pop on all over it. And these proteins are called chaperones. Now, the function of a chaperone is to correctly fold a protein. In this case, the chaperones are preventing the protein from folding. It's like, you're in the wrong location. Do not fold now. So this whole complex with the signal, chaperones bound, gets over to the mitochondrial membrane where there's a channel. And this goes through post-translationally. This is fully translated now. It gets through post-translationally. And when it gets across, the signal is cleaved off. Um, The chaperones come off before it starts to go in. Now, in the matrix of the the mitochondria, there are there are proteins that are almost exactly the same as these. More chaperones awaiting the protein coming in. So now I'm going to sort of show you. This is, I can only move this hand a little bit. So this hand's going to be going into the um, mitochondria from a a channel from below. And so the, the chaperones are popping off as it goes in. But as it gets into the matrix, a chaperone will bind it. It will continue to go up, and a chaperone will bind it here and so it prevents it from going back into the cytoplasm. Okay, so it sort of anchors it in and then it folds properly once it's completely inside. And that requires energy, uh, ATP, sort of like a ratchet. Okay, so that's how proteins get into the mitochondrion. How do proteins get into the nucleus? Every nuclear protein has a signal as well.
and seven amino acids. It's proline, lysine, 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 arginine, lysine, <laughs> and valine. That's it. That's the nuclear localization signal. Positive charge, positive charge, positive charge, positive charge, positive charge. This signal can be anywhere on the protein. It can be at the beginning, it can be in the middle, it can be at the end. It's got to be contiguous. It has to be somewhere on the protein. It's recognized by uh, a protein called an important because it imports it into the nucleus. An important. It, it, it takes its uh, nuclear cargo. That's what it's, it takes its cargo into the nucleus and it takes it through this incredibly large pore uh, which is called a nuclear pore complex. Nuclear pore complex, which has as many as 100 proteins. It's huge. And it's permeable to ions, but not to, not to proteins unless they're carried in on an important. Now, there's no energy for the import required to get the important bringing in the nuclear protein into the nucleus. But for the important to get back out into the cytoplasm, it requires the hydro uh, hydrolysis of GTP. So that's what we have for that. We can fill out our chart. I have a picture of a pore at the end. Okay, so we did that. So the mitochondria signal, this is to summarize, this is going to be online for you, is the amphipathic helix. Chaperones bind it, take it to the mitochondria. Protein enters a, a channel. It's post-translationally taken across, and this requires energy. ATP hydrolysis that's um, by, done by the chaperones. To get into the nucleus, you need a nuclear localization signal, seven amino acids. And importance, deliver it to the nuclear pore complex, which, by the way, a nucleus is absolutely studded with these pores. It is also post-translationally delivered to the nucleus. And the energy source is, well, the energy source is, there's no energy source to get into the nucleus, but for the importance to get out, it requires GTP hydrolysis. So I put that there. Now, which one of these has uh, signals that are cleaved? Well, the plasma membrane, does that have a signal that's cleaved? What, to get out to the fully ex exported, does that require a signal sequence that's cleaved? Yes. Okay, I got two yeses. 
Signal sequence is cleaved if you're going to the membrane. Signal sequence is cleaved if you're being fully exported from the cell. What about the mitochondrion? The signal sequence is cleaved. Not every mitochondrial protein is going to have the same N-terminus. So that's cleaved as you're imported into the, to the mitochondrion. What about the nucleus? That would be impossible. <laughs> no. The nuclear localization signal is not cleaved. It's in every nuclear protein. In fact, you can take this uh, signal, you can just put these peptides, these, uh, this peptide stretch, onto a cytoplasmic protein, and it will get delivered into the nucleus. So, is the signal cleaved? Yes, 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 no. And um, there's a slide showing you the nuclear pores coming up next. This has moved me along a little faster the way it's been uh, going like that. You can see they're an octagon shape. Um, there's a plug. There's a picture of a nucleus over here, and uh, you can see how many are on the surface of a nucleus. Okay, do you have any questions?